Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is no such thing as a stupid question. Yeah, the only yeah, stupid that's... question is the one that you don't ask. That's Fiona Balzer, the Policy and Advocacy Manager of the Australian Shareholders Association. I've recently joined the association to help me learn more about the share market. The ASA is an independent, not-for-profit association for individual investors. We've covered before that buying a share means that you're buying a part of the company. What we haven't talked about is that this also gives you the right to go to the annual general meeting to ask questions of management, vote on resolutions, and generally make a noise if you're not happy with the company's performance. At the ASA, I've met some great people with a wealth of knowledge. The members are deeply engaged. They take the time to explore every nook and cranny of a company's operation. They have meetings, discussion groups, seminars and workshops where you can meet and learn. I'll include a link on the website. Go to one of their meetings. You'll be shocked at how much you don't know. They also vote on $4 billion worth of proxies each year to influence the decisions of boards and company directors. We're going to be covering what a proxy is and what it means when you're voting in an annual general meeting. So it's with great pleasure that I chat with Fiona about shares, financial planning, the importance of the annual general meeting and the Australian Shareholders Association. Good morning. Good morning, Phil. Thanks for coming along. Let's start with your background. Just a brief overview of your work history, because you do have quite a bit of background knowledge of the share market, obviously. <laughs> it's a nice way of saying I've been around for a long time. <laughs> The, the first 15 years of my career was spent as an equity analyst at an institutional investment house. So I worked for Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, New South Wales State Super, managing their equity exposure for particular segments of the equity market. So hang on, we're just going to go straight into the simplification. What is an equity analyst and okay. what do they do? Well, when you have your super funds... Invested, you have a bunch of experts who pick which shares to buy. 
the best way to get the most knowledge from that group of people is to have them specialised. So you have equity analysts who look at what the shares are, what the industry is likely to do in the next 10 years, um, and figure out which shares are the better value to put the the funds into. And with the specialisation, I had started out with forestry and entrepreneurs, which were a particular sector that was big in the 90s. And um, I moved into the diversified companies, the telecoms when they became a a thing, because before Telstra was listed, it wasn't a thing, and uh, health and uh, transport companies as well. So I had those specialisations. And what you do with the different specialisations is you're able to engage with all the other people in your team and figure out which shares are best. And that, you know, then you put the funds in the best shares. Mm -hmm. And just having all that time to devote to a specific sector means, for example, telecoms, I knew what had happened in uh, the US with regards to their telecommunications industry when the bells broke up, the different um, local telecommunications companies. And what happened in the UK too, when they tried to get competition going and the industry started evolving. So with that background, it's like you have a broad understanding of how shares work and the different transactions, and then you'd sort of have deep dives into specifics of individual companies. So is it a role that's supporting fund managers? Um, Basically, it is um, supporting what we call portfolio managers. So in some uh, what we call institutional um, investors, so that's like your super funds and the like, they have portfolio managers who figure out the different weightings of, you know... Weightings is... Weightings, say you have 10 million dollars, one million dollars will go into telecommunications and half a million will go into Telstra, for the want of a better example. So the different amounts you buy in each share, because just as important as identifying shares that go up is also you shouldn't have more money exposed to something that might go up really well, but might not. It's something that's going to go up more steadily and more reliably. You might want to have more exposure to that. So they figure out the weightings, and in most houses, probably half and half, your equity analysts may determine the weightings and you basically fight amongst yourself. So if I want to buy something I've got, and I don't have anything I think you should sell, well, I should sell, make somebody else give up something by convincing them that it's less advantageous for the, the beneficial holders mm-hmm. than buying my, my like, <laughs> mostly like stock. Yeah. So um, that's one way of doing it. Another way is you have the portfolio manager who actually determines the weightings and the analysts feed in the expertise about what they expect the particular companies to perform. So this is um, it's, it's fundamental analysis that you would be undertaking. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Predominantly fundamental. Which is? Which is figuring out what what a company can do and then what its shares can do in terms of how much it can grow and what its shares should be valued at. Unfortunately, you also have to figure out, you can figure out what price you think a share is worth and then you also have the market which may disagree with you and you would only buy it if it come, the price was, is within your expected range. It may be that the price remains higher than your range for a period and for that reason, you might use some form of technical analysis to figure out you know, if the price will ever come back to what you think it's worth. 
So you can combine some of the other elements of analysis, but predominantly it's fundamental bottom up. So, you know, starting with all of the bits that make up a company. The, um, fin- the financial the, information that they Yeah, that financial they information, the likelihood of the industry growing fast or growing slowly, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. Are, are these the kind of things that um, individual uh, investors in the share market should be taking uh, note of? I think that Warren Buffett often gets quoted about not buying shares you don't understand. And I think that individual shareholders can learn about their companies. And if they have a particular interest, learn about the industries that their companies operate in and have a better idea about what is likely for the shares they're going to buy. And I think that that is an advantage because when you get um, pieces of news that may move the share price, you're able to look at it and say, that's a piece of news that should change the share price. I have to rethink my expectations or that is just a piece of noise that in a few days won't make a difference. I can ignore that and either get on with my life or look at another company or... Do you have any examples of that? I can remember like a general example where perhaps some regulation is reported that it will change and the share price moves terribly quickly in a downward direction. But everybody in the industry, the company, knew that that piece of legislation was coming. It just hadn't been reported in the media in such an inflammatory way. So actually the expectations of that regulation impact were in the price. That sort of thing happens. And if if you'd read what the company reported um, for the last two or three years, you'd be saying, okay, they've said that this will have this impact and yes, you can. And then the media come in and uh, with all guns blazing. And yes, uh, yeah, because because it makes such an interesting story. And yeah. then if the share price moves, because um, people have been a bit frightened more because the price has moved than by the news. Yeah, there's a lot of noise, and it does move. The company moves beyond it, and the share price goes to its former trajectory. Yeah, but that sort of thing happens all the the time. It re- I don't know how people manage their shares without having a bit of awareness of what the company's saying. In our conversation when we first met, you mentioned four buckets of investing. What are those four buckets? Uh, yeah, my premise is that we all have to save for our own super because not many people are going to get any pension in the future. Or you know, it might be 50% get part, 20% get full, but that's a lot of us who need to know where we're putting what can be called wealth but also can be called savings for our future. And the four buckets you can invest in are cash and fixed interest, so your term deposits, bonds and cash in bank account, shares, both domestic, like local and international, property, and then there's this other bucket called alternatives, which really is everything that's not those other buckets. But shares, property and cash you can learn about those, and it's really important if you're thinking about saving for 50 years to have a, an idea of how you can make wealth. And, and I guess it's also uh, something to do with the, the, the particular weighting of those buckets depend on your stage in life. It can depend on your stage in life. It can also depend on where you think those particular buckets are going. It can depend on what's called your risk profile. So If, for example, you're in more um, straightened circumstances, you're going to need to have more weighting to things that won't vanish in value. 
But if you're a multimillionaire, you can afford to have more in something that will vanish. Uh, you know, we saw Packer and um, Murdoch invest in OneTel, which was a bit of a disaster for a number of investors, and they can afford to lose the money they invested in that. So it will depend on your risk profile. And um, the other thing is where we are in the market at this time. So at the moment, one of the things we discussed back then was that um, you can't get much money out of fixed interest or cash in the bank. So that may mean that while it would be great to have a lower risk option being a lot of cash, you're going to have to increase your risk profile to be able to have income that will last you till 85, 90, 9500 years of age. Yeah, it's a real problem at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> it is a real problem. And yeah. you, you'll see in different reports that the, the weighting to those different buckets changes with expectations. Let's have a chat about the, your work at the um, Shareholders Association. Now, when I first met the, when I went, went to my first meeting, I was taken aback because of the, um, the age of the members that came along to the meeting. But, um, that was before I realized how sharp they were and how much knowledge was in the room and how militant they are as well. It's a really militant bunch, isn't it? <laughs> I think you could say that there are a bunch of people who know their own minds. I joined the Shareholders Association originally after my equity investments. I worked for a board performance assessment company, so figuring out how a board operates to make a company better, and then very similarly moved on to the Shareholders Association. And I too was amazed by the age of the people. But the other thing that amazed me was you look at some people and you think they're a certain age, but you find out later they're 15, 20 years older. So yes, they are a group of people that have a lot of experience. They're people who get out and invest. They're very happy to share their experience as well. And we'll have people call us and say, I'm new to the share market. Do you think I should join? Or they'll ask advice. And the Shareholders Association is a member-based organisation. We have an annual membership and people who are interested in shares and retail shareholders being appropriately treated by companies and regulation and government and the like, they will join the association. And people ask me, should I join or should I do this, should I do that? And I say, go to a meeting because what will happen is you might get a cold call from a broker or an offer of an initial offer. If you go to those meetings, someone there will have had a very similar experience. They'll be able to say, oh, yes. You've really got to watch that first risk in that paper. That, you know, when they say this particular share can go broke, don't forget that. Or, you know, I invested in lithium in 1999 and it went badly. Or this particular, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this particular thing happened. Or they'll hark back to a company, a new company in a new industry, and they'll be able to share with you how that industry evolves and what the risks are, say, for new companies. Um, and companies without, say, a history of profit. And and we see that when we go into new industries. Like, it's been a long time. Vodafone, for example, took a long time to actually make a profit. And um, understanding how those businesses work mean you can make an assessment about how many shares you should buy and whether you use the money that you can afford to lose or maybe a bit of the money that you want for the future to buy those shares. But all that sort of thing, they're well, willing to share with you. 
Oh, I know. It's fantastic. And so I think, well, let's just say we'd recommend anyone to join the Australian <laughs> Shareholders Association because it's a very fast learning experience that you have there and you can ask those questions if you're faced with a financial situation. There's a lot of people there and a lot of knowledge available to you just sitting around and chatting on a Tuesday morning or something. <laughs> yes, there's that. And then when you have people, speakers come in mm-hmm. from particular funds and the like, the questions in the room are informed by that background that our members have. And that sceptical cynicism. <laughs> yes, always good to have a bit of scepticism. So the other, the other side of the work that the association does is in terms of going to company annual general meetings? Yes, that's actually the part of the business that I take care of. We have Mm -hmm. an education arm, which we encourage people to learn as much as they can, and then we hold the companies to account through what we call company monitoring. So people who are members of the association and have an interest in attending AGMs and holding holding the companies to account, they volunteer, and I manage a group of 110 or so people who meet with the companies, they discuss what the performance has been like. Remuneration can be a bit complex and a bit tedious, but quite often that is the litmus test of, you know, whether it's good or bad, poorly how much, managed. How much the executives are being paid. How much they're being paid. Has, has the board said to themselves, you know, how much is enough and how much is too much? And that's a sign that you would expect to filter right down the company you're managing, that if they're thinking of things in a holistic fashion, they should be um, paying an appropriate amount to the executives and rewarding them for appropriate achievements. And one of the things the Shareholders Association is really keen on is that the performance reflects how the individual shareholder is affected. So if the shares are going up strongly and the dividend's been strong, uh, we're happier with paying more. And if the opposite's the case, we think that the executives shouldn't shouldn't still walk away with the extra benefit. You ask the hard questions. <laughs> ask the hard questions. And then the other thing is too that when you own a company, you feel, or own a share, you feel like you own the company. We also want that profit to be achieved appropriately. We want the Royal Commission, for example, caused a lot of distress amongst shareholders because they feel that um, dividends haven't that they've been taking haven't actually been achieved in a way that was really positive for the customers, that perhaps there was exploitation of the vulnerable. So um, we, we engage with the companies and try to get them to improve their game. And various initiatives over the years have seen some improvement in the alignment with the shareholder outcome. But of course, the Royal Commission actually is still looming over us and that is working through the system, how we can make sure that those egregious behaviours never happen again. So can you give us an example of an effect that your lobbying or the, the, the kind of pressure that the, the association has applied has had an effect on a company that you've seen as a positive outcome? Looking at it in a more general fashion, uh, we have asked that the companies disclose actual remuneration. The laws around reporting remuneration are actually uh, really complex and conflicting. So you end up with a lot of information you can't understand because legally the companies have to show it. And we think that you should know what the executive's walking away with. So you might know that when someone gets paid, they get the cash for the year, they get a short-term bonus, some of which is cash in the same year, some is put in shares given to you a couple of years later, 
And then there's long-term incentives. So in 2019, you might receive the 2015 incentive if you've jumped the hurdle Mm -hmm. appropriately. You may have been told that you are being paid $4 million, but when they walk away with the shares, they're getting $10 million. And there's, you know, an element of how much is is too much. And if somebody is walking away with this huge amount of money, that's money that is not going to the shareholders or the company because the company could reinvest that money. You know, does that actually have an impact on uh, how the other people in the company respect and treat the CEO? Yeah. Um, and ultimately, I guess, is it a benefit to the shareholders? Is it a benefit to the shareholders? Is it a benefit to you know everybody who uh, interacts with that company? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Okay, so this is something that we haven't covered on this podcast before is the AGM. Yep. And I think maybe it's worthwhile looking at an AGM. What's, what's the importance of an annual general meeting? Retail shareholders feel that the annual general meeting is the only time where we can hold directors to account. At other times, they appear on the media, in closed rooms and the like, and it's really difficult to let them know that you're disappointed either by how the company is communicating with you or performing or hurting vulnerable customers with the Royal Commission. Whereas at the AGM, both the chair and the rest of the board have to get up on the stage and tend to mingle afterwards. So you can actually have those discussions with them and say how disappointed, for example, you've been with what was transpiring at the Royal Commission or that the company two years ago had said that this particular investment would do all sorts of wonderful things And you're feeling misled because none of this has transpired. You feel like the risks weren't adequately highlighted at the time that this could be a 30% up, 10% down type of scenario. So that's the only time retail shareholders can talk with those executives. And hold them to account. And hold them to account. Whereas your institutional investor who may own between 2% of the company or 10 or 15, they can get an interview with those people. Just go in and talk. And um, retail shareholders feel excluded. So the AGM is really a retail shareholder forum. So describe an AGM. What is an AGM? Is it something that's required by law? Yes, um, all companies are required to hold company meetings and the shareholders are required uh, to get a notice 28 days before laying out what resolutions will be voted on and People might be familiar with special meetings where you might agree to sell the company to someone else. That's one type of resolution. But the regular meetings, you get to elect the directors to their role. And then you also get to uh, agree issues of capital to the executives. And in Australia, we have this uh, remuneration report vote where if you have more than 25% of the people voting who vote 
voting against it, the following year, if you have the same result, you can actually do what's called spilling the board. So you have to also have a resolution that says you can vote all the directors out. It's not common that that, that the directors are all, all voted out because if you think about it, somebody has to be responsible for the company. So there is an issue that you can't just sack everyone and let somebody figure out what happens afterwards. Um, so that's not often uh, used, but it, it's there and it's a bit of a big stick and doesn't always reflect just what people feel about remuneration because 25% is much lower hurdle. Um, if you're really unhappy with the company, a lot of people will vote against that remuneration report. Mm -hmm. And if a director gets 50% of people voting against their election, they basically don't get the job. So it's quite powerful in that regard. And the meeting tends to be procedural in terms of those resolutions all have to be validly voted. You might lodge a proxy for those meetings, which means somebody you let somebody else go and determine what your vote is, or you might um, do what's called direct voting. But that's a way of getting your thoughts on the company taken into account. And we think that everyone who owns individual shares should actually make the effort to look at those notices and vote. Okay, that's interesting because uh, we have covered on the podcast about how when you're a shareholder, you're a part owner of the company. And, but we haven't covered this, that you can actually do have a, a material difference according to the, uh, the voting that can take place at an annual general meeting. Yeah and, yeah, and sometimes retail shareholders feel overwhelmed by the weight of the other uh, voters because for every share you own, you get one vote. Mm -hmm. So those big institutional investors who have 10, 15, 50%, they will sway the vote overall. But at times there might be disagreement amongst those investors and that might mean that the retail shareholder is the ones who make the difference as to whether a resolution or a the voting of a director gets up. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can think about your vote, it is really good for you to express that opinion. And also I think that longer term, if we can say that um, you know, 30,000 people voted against a particular resolution, even though it didn't meet that 50% threshold, that that will mean that um, directors can't say, oh, everybody thought this was a great idea. Yeah. You'd have to say if a huge number of individual voters vote against something, that there's a particular class of shareholders who aren't happy with what the company's doing. Okay, let's have a uh, chat about compounding because you've got a um, something you like talking about compounding and the different aspects of compounding. Okay. Yeah, compounding sounds like a really tedious topic and <laughs> anyone who feels mathematically challenged will think um, compounding is something to be totally ignored. But one of the issues about superannuation is if you start investing when you're in your 20s and put aside money, that money will earn money and that will be reinvested, for example, in your super, and then that extra money will earn money. And the power of uh, compounding is that your money starts doubling over a series of years, and that means you can get this wealth for your, your retirement. And it is really crucial that people understand that, that compounding, the higher percentage returns you get, the better your long-term wealth. So we talked about cash rates being low, at 1% reinvested each year, you can imagine like that's $1.100 each year. 
that's going to grow very slowly. So it's almost like $1 this year and an extra one cent and $1 the year after. Whereas if you're getting six, a uh, return of $6 in 100, that money's reinvested. So it's you know $6 one year, $6.60 the next. And over a lifetime, you know, at my age, I think I get to retire at 67. <laughs> so if I started at 20, those sums add up. And that is, again, why I think people need to take control of of their finances and to understand what's happening with their finances and try and get them to compound at a greater rate for a longer term. And then I have another idea of knowledge compounding, that, yes, shares are complex when you start with just a blank canvas, but you can actually build your knowledge over time. And as you learn more, you're able to learn more. So it's compounding knowledge as well. Yeah. And that'll help your investment returns. Yes. And yeah. I just think people feel far more in control of their finances if they have an understanding of what's going on. And when you ha- have an understanding of what's going on, you also realise that there's compounding costs as well, isn't there? Yeah. That's something that um, came up in my career. I was, um, after I joined the Shareholders Association the first time, I then went on to a private wealth company and we had the global financial crisis while I was there. And a big thing about the funds was a lot of their fees were one, two, three, four percent And when returns were 20%, so, you know, a fifth, one in five, having a bit of that taken away in fees was fine. But once your returns get down to 4% or even less... That means there's nothing left over from the fees. And we saw all those funds actually reduce their fees substantially. But when you're getting really small returns, if you have a 1 in 10 return and your fee is 1 in 10, that's no return. What advice would you give someone who is going to see a financial planner for the first time? I think that someone's going to a financial planner the first time should remember that if you do not understand that planner, and that planner makes you feel stupid, then they are not the planner for you. Basically, there's no stupid questions. If you are having trouble understanding what they say and they belittle you or talk over the top or say, trust me, you are going to have no control over that relationship in the future. What you need is someone who says, okay, what part of this do you not understand? Because we all come from different backgrounds and it can be we use one word in one context in our working life and the word is different in a financial sense. I sometimes worry that your financial advisor who's using jargon doesn't actually understand the jargon. If they understand the tricky words and the acronyms, then they'll explain to you in plain English. And, And you might say, you know, explain it to me like you would to your mother as long as she's not a finance person, (laughs) Uh, because it's important that you have the understanding. And again, that's another way you can pound your knowledge if your financial advisor helps your education process. One of the aims of my podcast and doing this is you're not necessarily going to end up being a hotshot day trader out of this podcast, but even just to have a modicum of knowledge so that you can, when you're being, when you're speaking to a financial planner or someone who's going to look after your, your money for you, that you're armed with a bit more knowledge and not going in completely cold. Yes, I think you can also um, Money Smart, which is one of the ASIC, the Australian Securities Investment Commission uh, website 
fronts. Um, they have advice on what to look for with a financial advisor and the types of questions to ask. And I think too, in these days of cold calls and scams, that having that additional knowledge will also make you aware that if somebody's offering you something that's too good to be true, that it probably is because you'll have an idea what too good to be true is. Whereas mm. if you you don't have that or you don't keep your knowledge current, you can be uh, tricked into other arms of investment that aren't really financial advice, but mm. you think they are. Ask the question you have, make sure you feel comfortable. So the Australian Shareholders Association, tell us why we should all be members of it. <laughs> <laughs> we are the only group of uh, the only membership organisation that represents retail shareholders. So in my role, I manage the company monitoring, as we've talked about, with the annual general meetings and engaging with companies. But also we liaise with the government through regulators, through treasury, on laws where um, retail shareholders should be take their their needs and views should be taken into account, making sure shareholders have access to capital raisings. We saw th through the global financial crisis when companies were going broke and needed to raise more money, that money was put to the big investors at really high discounts, so really cheap shares to shore up the company. That meant retail shareholders weren't able to, to get involved. And that meant that at the end of the day, they own less of the company than they did before the global financial crisis. And they had paid proportionally more for their shares. And I think it's important as well that, and this is what I've gotten out of it, is first of all, you become part of a community that's only talking about shares. And you pick up so much information about particular companies. You pick up information about the way people look at companies and valuing those companies. That That's really worthwhile for the, the learning process. And I think, too, when you know, we see investment clubs, and one of the reasons people might start an investment club is they want to feed, feed off each other's ideas, but also you can have someone who's the devil's advocate, the someone who goes, yes, but have you thought about this? So you make a more thoughtful investment in the first place because you've actually had those extra views that you might have thought of after the share price dropped, <laughs> <laughs> after you'd bought it and gone, oh, I should have thought of that. <laughs> Hopefully someone will flag that before and you might. It's fine if shares drop and you're prepared to wear that loss. Um, it's just a bit scary if you hadn't even thought of that potential. So, mm -hmm. yep, get more ideas get more information more and you can and you can talk to people in these meetings and ask specific questions absolutely mm. and and while people can't give advice just that life experience we do find that many people these days rely on their friends and family for advice and having a bit broader pool of experience to draw from can be really yeah, don't helpful. listen to your friends and family <laughs> <laughs> on investment advice. That's the worst thing you can do. <laughs> Fiona, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks, Phil. It's been a great experience. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice, and you shouldn't buy or sell any shares based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. And I'd also like to say a big thank you to Christopher Sulos of Garlic Breath Studios for all the fantastic help with the music production.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 